Thank you, Paige. And thank you all for being here. I'm glad you came out to see me this morning. And <laughs> uh, if you're a guest here, we welcome you. You're a part of the family today. And there's a little flap inside the bulletin you received, and you can fill that out. And you cannot put it in the offering plate this morning because it's already been passed. But there's a counter out in the front, and, and uh, there'll be a place where you can place it there. And, because we want to get back to you, let you know that we appreciate you being here. And I'm Ted Duncan. I'm not here all the time. We have a place in California. We spend some time out there. But we're glad to be back, and it's my, uh, my joy and privilege to be bringing you some messages in the next couple of weeks uh, from Matthew chapter 13 about the parables. Uh, so you might turn out. Uh, actually, this is a very long day in the life of the Messiah. It starts way back in chapter 12 when Pastor Bill Marty was here. And by the way, I talked to him yesterday, and he's struggling. He's, he's frustrated because his recovery is slow, but he's making progress, and he hopes to have a full recovery and be back with us soon. And <clears throat> he started preaching from chapter 12 there in the, that first verse, and that was early in the morning. And at that time, he, he and his disciples were walking through the grain fields, and they were taking some of the ears of, of grain, and they were rubbing it in their hands and knocking the husk off, and then they were eating the kernels of wheat. And the Pharisees had a fit because they were working, they were reaping, on uh, threshing on the Sabbath day. That's just how deranged those for, folks were. And then a little later on in the morning, uh, he went into the synagogue. And, in the, and this is in about verses uh, 9 through 21. And they brought to him a man who had a withered hand. And they were there to test him. It was the Sabbath, remember. And they weren't, wanted to see what he'd do. Well, he just spoke the word, and the man's hand was restored as whole. And they had a fit again because he had done this work on the Sabbath day. Uh, that's just how they had determined in their hearts, no matter what Christ did or what he said, or what people said about him or what they witnessed in his life, they were opposed to him because he didn't fit into their mold, their pattern of who the Messiah should be. He did not come congratulating them, embracing them, uh, rewarding them for their faithfulness in keeping the Sabbaths and the commandments and the feast days and the fast days and the holy days and all the things that they did. In fact, he was quite opposed to them. Uh, as we will see in that next passage, uh, around midday in a public square in verses 22 through 37, which um, Mark preached on last week, here was a situation where they brought to him a man who was terribly uh, disadvantaged. He was possessed by demons and totally out of control. He was blind as he could be. He could not speak a word. And Christ simply healed him completely. And how did the Pharisees respond? Were they impressed? Were they converted? Absolutely not. They said he'd done it all by the devil, by Beelzebub. And they would not be budged from their position of adversarial toward the Lord. Their desire was to 
confront him, to convict him of some sin, to get sympathy and to get judgment against him that they might put him to death. That was their goal. And of course, Christ, as Mark said, called them a brood of vipers. And they were only compounding their judgment against them. And then later on in the afternoon, and I have to apologize for this. This is verse 39 or 38 through 50. Uh, way back in the summertime last year when we knew that Pastor Kent was going to be gone, uh, the elders asked me to take the book of Matthew and to break it into passages that could be preached from, and I did that. We've been doing that ever since. And I had this passage all laid out, but somehow I didn't get it into the schedule and nobody else picked up on it. And so we're basically skipping it because I've been assigned to start in Matthew 13, but you ought to look at that passage. Here, these Pharisees, they come to him and of all things, they said, would you show us a sign? Would you do us a miracle? Hello? He'd been doing miracles all along. He performed one of the greatest miracles ever that same day. And now they say, would you just show us some sign? As though he were a puppet. On Whenever they moved the strings, he was supposed to dance. Well, he said, I'm not going to do it. I'll give you this one sign, and that's the sign of Jonah. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of that great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Of course, speaking of his death and his burial, the time he spent in the tomb from Friday through Sunday. <clears throat> so that's it. And then he went on to say, listen, the people of Nineveh are going to rise up and judge this generation because when Jonah preached to them, they repented. And one much greater than Jonah is right here, speaking of himself. And he said... The queen of Sheba is going to rise up and judge this generation because she came from the ends of the earth way down in Africa to just listen to Solomon and marveled at his wisdom. And he said, yet someone much wiser than Solomon is here in your midst. Speaking of himself, they hated that. And he just basically was telling them that their judgment was being compounded. With everything they heard, with everything they witnessed, and everything they rejected, their judgment was becoming greater and greater and greater. And he, towards the end there, he says, uh, you're like that man out of whom the demon was cast. And he cleaned up his act, and, and he cleaned up his house, and he was like a Pharisee, going to be uh, really good. But in the process, the demon couldn't find a place to land, and so he got seven others more wicked than he, and he came back and inhabit him all over again, and the end was far worse than the beginning. And they're hearing that, knowing that he's talking about them. And then uh, later on he goes into a house, and, and there he's preaching to multitudes that filled the entire place. And people come to him and say, hey, your, your mother and your brothers are out there, and they want to they see you, expecting him to go out there. And he basically said, who are my mother and my brothers? And he looked down and he said, those of you who obey the Lord, believe in me, you are my mother, my brothers, my sisters. And that's where that, that chapter ends. You know what? <laughs> if you're a believer in Christ and you're part of the family of God, God is our father. We call him Abba, Daddy, Father. And we are brothers and sisters of Christ. He's our elder brother. 
And we belong to him. We're part of God's family. And not physically related, I come from a long line of Scotsmen, Gentiles, pagans. But by the grace of God, I've been grafted into the family. That's a great passage. Somebody should have preached on that. But uh, we're going to Matthew chapter 13. And if you'll notice at the very beginning of chapter 13, it says, And on that same day, <laughs> Jesus left that house. This was late in the afternoon. What a busy day. And he talked to them in parables. So by introduction, let me just uh, kind of go through this. What are parables? Parables are stories. They're not meant to be actual, factual things that really happened. They're taken from everyday life. Baking bread, catching fish, planting a field, reaping the harvest, building a structure, conducting business, uh, having a, a wedding feast, things that they were accustomed to. And they don't have specificity. They don't mention people's names or places. And they're nothing uh, spectacular events. They're just common stuff that happens that they could relate to. But in it, he teaches kind of a hidden spiritual truth. Not like uh, last fall I preached from Matthew 8, <laughs> an amazing thing, filled with specificity, filled with unusual, strange stuff. Where Jesus and his disciples got on the boat, they went across the sea, they came to the area of Gadara, and they met two men that were absolutely, totally possessed by demons. And he confronts them, and the demons say, don't cast us into the abyss. Don't punish us and torment us before our time. Cast us into these pigs. You remember that? And there were 2,000 of them, and Jesus allowed that to happen. They went into those pigs. The pigs, now possessed by demonic spirits, rushed down that steep slope, plunged into the sea, and drowned. And the people saw all of that. Rather than repenting, they said, Lord, would you please leave here? <laughs> We're not comfortable with who you are and what you're doing. And that is filled with unusual things. How often does that happen? <laughs> That's... A factual, historical, as, as mind-boggling as that might be, that actually happened. That's not a parable. You know, after that message, later on, someone came to me and said, Pastor Ted, what do you think happened to those pigs? Now, they're floating out there dead in the sea. They can't just rot there and pollute the waters and kill the fish. Could they possibly bring them in and bury all of them? They couldn't just leave them to rot on the shores. What did they do? <laughs> that sounds like something that Brother Dean would say. He's got that inquisitive mind. He's always thinking things. But it wasn't he. And I said, well, I don't know. Because the Bible doesn't say. But my impression is that they brought them in, butchered them, and had the biggest barbecue you have ever seen. Invited people from all over to come and eat their fill because they eat no more. And the next day, the leftovers, they make deviled ham sandwiches. That's what I think. But I really don't know. We are careful not to add to Scripture. But we're not talking about weird events that actually happened. We're talking about parables, uh, stories that convey special truth. And <clears throat> how many are there in the New Testament? Well, they're all found in the, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you will. 
And according to uh, MacArthur's study Bible, there were 39 different ones recorded. How many do you think are recorded in the Gospel of John? Zero. <laughs> John was so focused. He didn't deal with genealogies. He had very few miracles. He had no parables. Remember what he said at the end? He said, there are so many other things that Christ did and said. And he was right there. He heard every parable. But he said, what I'm saying, I'm saying that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that by believing on him, you might be saved. So he, he didn't have any parables. But uh, there are 39 of them in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And some of them are in all three. Some are in two. Some are just in one. Matthew has 20. And nine of them are just his own. And of those nine, five of them are in the passage that we're going to be looking at in the next few weeks. Mark only had nine, and only two of them were unique to him. The big guy on parables was Luke. He had 27 parables, and 17 of them are found only in Luke. So if you get into parables, and by the way, I think Bill Marty just wrote a book on parables. And when it's out, you need to get a hold of it. He is a credible source of biblical truth. Why did he speak in parables? Why didn't he just be very factual, very articulate, letting this is the way it is. This is the way the cow ate the cabbage. But he, he gives these parables that, that you don't readily understand. And he explains why. If we look here in... Uh, Verse 11, 12, and 13. He answered and said to them, because they asked him, why do you speak in parables? Verse 10. Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. He's talking to his disciples here, not to the multitudes. But to them it has not been given. For whoever has, to him more will be given. And he will have abundance. But whoever does not have... Even what he does have will be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. This is actually an act of mercy on his part, because those Pharisees, those scribes, were totally against him. They were not going to respond no matter what he did, what he said. They wanted him dead. And the more he taught them, the more information they had, the greater their judgment. And in the judgment day, they would suffer far more. So he hides it from them, but he wants to reveal it to his own. And in today's message and next week's message, he interprets it for them. So they get the idea of how to look at a parable and to gain the truth out of it. And if we look over on the next page in my Bible... It says in verse 34 and 35, all these things Jesus spoke uh, to the multitudes in parables. Without a parable, he did not speak to them. That it might be fulfilled, which was written by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. That's from Psalm 78. And back there in that other passage, he goes on to quote a part of Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah saw the Lord. God cleansed him, commissioned him, but he said, it's not going to be easy. You're going to talk to people, and they're going to look, but they're not going to see. They're going to listen, but they're not going to hear. Their hearts are going to be hardened, and they're not going to respond. So 
this was clearly prophesied in the Old Testament. Um, so Christ is using parables to convey truth to his own, but to conceal that from the unbelievers, actually to prevent them from having even greater judgment. <clears throat> and then what is the significance of the seven parables that are in Matthew chapter 13? Because they're different. They all relate to what is called the mystery form of the kingdom. Look back again at verse 11. He answered and said unto them, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. You see, the kingdom was very real in the Old Testament, established by Saul, promised long before that. David established it and expanded it. Solomon continued it. Israel was a kingdom. It had physical borders and language and culture. It had cities and they controlled, at one time, they were the greatest kingdom in that known world. But that kingdom struggled. It crumbled because of their sin. And even in Christ's day, they were under Roman rule, but they were still a people. They still inhabited the land. They still had Jerusalem. They still had the temple. They had great hope that their Messiah would come and throw off the Roman rule and establish a great nation once again. But Christ knew that wasn't going to happen. He said, my kingdom is not of this time. And whenever they ask him, will you restore the kingdom? And he said, it's not for you to know. He knew that it'd be a couple thousand years before the kingdom would be restored. And it will be. The Bible is very clear that when Christ comes again at the end of the tribulation, he will come with great power and great glory. And he will destroy his enemies and he'll set up a kingdom uh, that will uh, be... Well, like the Bible says, the knowledge of the word of the Lord will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. A time of great peace, a time of great prosperity, a time of great freedom. All that's coming. But in between, for the past 2,000 years, we've been in the mystery form of the kingdom. The kingdom hasn't been abandoned, but it's been kind of removed. And Christ is telling us in this passage, through parables, what you can expect during that interim period. And those who really study the scriptures say that these 13 parables coincide with the 13 cities the, that John wrote to in Revelation in chapter 2 and 3. There are seven in each of them. And if you look at it from a prophetic point of view, you can see the progression, or I might say digression, of what happens in this world during that period. So that's what we're going to look at. And we're going to start, first of all, with the parable of the sower and the seed. And that's found in verses 1 through 23. <clears throat> and the setting, to kind of set the uh, atmosphere here, to give you some idea of what's going on, it says in the first two verses, in the same day Jesus went out of that house and he sat by the sea. He probably sat there just to rest. This has been a long, challenging day. But the people rarely gave him rest. It tells us that great multitudes were gathered together to him. They wanted to hear more. They wanted to see more. They pressed in. And so it says, so that he <clears throat> got into a boat and sat down and the whole multitude stood on the shore. Giving him a little, dis 
I don't want too much distance, or I'll be in the sea myself. Uh, but he's, he's got in that boat and set out there a ways, and all the people were out there, and he taught them these parables. And so we want to look at the telling of the parables. It's pretty straightforward. Uh, we'll read that, verses 3 and following. It says, Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as the sower <clears throat> sowed some seed fell on the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell in the stony places where they did not have much earth. And they immediately sprung up because they had no depth of the earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. Verse 7 says, And some fell into thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. Uh, verse 8, But others <clears throat> fell into good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He that has an ear, let him hear. This is... We can understand that. They were in an agrarian society. There was lots of sowing and reaping. They had the barley. They had the wheat. Uh, they had other grains. And, of course, they had all sorts of food crops. And so they could relate to this. And the first one is where the sower sows seed on the wayside, the pathway. This was the area between the fields and between the villages. And um, it was hard-packed. This is where people walked continually. What do we got in there? How many proof is this? Ah, that's not that coffee you were talking about in the first service. Okay. And you can relate to this. Uh, out there in California, this time of year is a great time of year. Usually it's dry and hot and desolate and ugly and the air can't be breathed. But in February, it's the best time of the year. It's had winter rains, and the grass on the hillsides is a foot deep, green as it can be. But up and down those bluffs, which is near the church, near where we live, I walk almost daily, there are paths that people walk on all the time. People ride bicycles, people ride horses, and in the midst of all this green growth, they're as bare as they can be. That's because they're packed down, become like asphalt. And... Obviously, the, the seed, though it falls there, cannot penetrate, cannot germinate, and the birds come and haul it away. We can relate to that. And then the next one is that, that soil that is rich, but it's shallow. And underneath it is a, is a ledge of rock. And initially, it's good because the sun comes down and radiates and heats that rock, and the rock heats the soil, and the seed germinates quickly, faster than anything around it. And it grows up, sprouts quickly. But later on, because of the drought, because of the heat, and there's no way the roots can go down because of the rock, it withers and it's scorched and it dries up and there is no crop. And then the weedy soil is, is good soil and deep soil, but it's full of weed seed. And the weeds are aggressive. Have you ever noticed that in your garden? <laughs> They're tough. They're resistant. They are aggressive. And they'll choke out your flowers or your vegetables or your grass because that's just what weeds do. And so it says that though that sprouts and grows up, 
It's tender, it's weak, and those aggressive weeds just choke it out, and there is no crop. But then the last one is that it falls into good soil. It's rich, it's deep, it's clean. And the seed germinates, and it grows, and it matures, and it bears a crop. Not all the same, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold, but it bears fruit. And that's the key that he wants to talk about. Now, <clears throat> the disciples didn't understand that, and when the, when the multitudes were away, uh, in the privacy of, of the house, they said, Lord, what does that mean? And so he interprets the parables, and that's what we want to look at next. The seed sown on the pathway. That, the seed is God's word. And the sower is Christ himself, as we'll see clearly uh, next week. And the soil is the condition of the heart on, upon which the seed of the word of God falls. And that which is the pathway, tragically, represents most of the people in this world. At that time and this time. There's a lot of gospel going out. It's, it's in the printed, it's in the Bible, obviously, that everybody has access to. Great books and commentaries. Uh, it's on the radio. It's through satellites. It's all over the world. Uh, and preachers that are empowered by God preach and teach the Word of God. And yet, for the most part, people ignore it. They reject it, make fun of it. Uh, they live their lives as though it had no impact on them at all. That seed cannot permeate into that hardened heart. And that he was speaking directly about the scribes and the Pharisees. It didn't matter what he said or what he did. They were not going to listen. And unfortunately, that's not just characteristic of them. In Matthew 7... Many weeks ago, we were preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, and, and it says, uh, make every effort to enter into that narrow gate. He says, because wide is the gate, and broad the path that leads to destruction, and there are many that enter thereat, but narrow is that gate, difficult is that way to lead to, to life, and few there be that find it. There are some that think that God is doing his very best to save everybody in this world, but he's frustrated and the devil's winning out because more people reject it than more who receive. God is in absolute control, folks. And the devil's not winning. But God has a different plan than, he, than we think. We think he should just come in and, and, and win everybody to himself. But God has said from the very beginning that there will be a turning away. There will be an indifference. There will be a rejection of that which is true. I hope probably there's nobody like that here today. You know why I know that? Because I can see into your hearts. I know everything you're... <laughs> no. Because if someone was like that, why would he be in a Bible-preaching church on Sunday? There's probably something better on TV or uh, go out and ride a snowmobile or go ice fishing like we saw some folks coming over here. They're not going to be in church. But they're out there. They're your neighbors. They're your co-workers. They may be some of your family members. 
and it breaks your heart because they're not going to respond. And it doesn't frustrate the Lord because he knew it from the beginning that there would be most of them that do not respond. Just like he said in Isaiah. They're going to listen, but they're, they're not going to hear. They're not going to understand. They're going to look, but they're not going to see. There's a hardness in their hearts. Let's look to the next one, the seed that's sown on the stony soil. They, they want him to interpret this. And we have to go over to uh, about verse uh, 18, 17. Here he's saying, I, I want you to know. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. Uh, anyone that hears the word of the kingdom does not understand it. Then the wicked one comes and snatches it away like the birds. And it's, it's sown in their hearts. This is the one who receives the seed on the wayside. We just talked about that. And then he says, but the one who receives the seed on the stony places, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet when he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while, for when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. This is that one who hears the word and it sounds great. God loves me. He will forgive me. I'll have eternal life. When I die, I'll go to heaven and I can do whatever I want to in between. And because God loves me, everything's going to be great. I think I mentioned last fall one time that I heard a young man sing. He says, you're going to love this new life in the Lord. You're going to love that new life in the Lord. No more tears, no more sorrows. Everything is bright tomorrows. You're going to love that new life in the Lord. Is that what happens? There is a new life in the Lord, and there is joy in that. But that does not mean that we will not suffer, that we'll not hurt, that we'll not lose, we'll not be uh, rejected, and our words rejected. And, and this is like Judas Iscariot. He saw Jesus and his miracles and heard him talk, and he said, he's the one. He's the Messiah. He's going to throw out those Romans. He's going to set up a great government here. He's going to rule and reign and in power and in majesty and riches and glory, and I'm going to be right by his side. I'm going to be his disciple. Was he saved? The Bible says clearly in John 6 at the very beginning of his ministry, Christ says, you are clean from the word that I've spoken. But not all of you. One of you is the devil. Speaking of Judas Iscariot. And though he, <laughs> he convinced the other disciples to the point that they trusted him with the money. And he may have even deceived himself, saying, yeah, I'm one of the guys. But Christ knew his heart. He called him the son of perdition, the son of judgment and condemnation. Um, when it started looking bad and it didn't look like Christ was going to do what he hoped he would do and he spoke of suffering and going in to Jerusalem and suffering and dying and so on uh, and he said the same thing's going to happen to you John 15 where Jesus said if they uh, if they hate you and they will it's because they hated me uh, if you had been of them they would receive you but because you're not they're going to reject you. If they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. 
And in the beginning of chapter 16 in John, he said, listen, the time is coming where they're going to throw you out of the synagogues and excommunicate you. And someone who kills you is going to think he's doing God a favor. Does that sound like Saul of Tarsus before God a hold of his life? I'm going to go out there, get rid of this sect of the Nazarenes, and get back to pure Judaism. He said, that's kind of what you can expect. In this world, you will suffer persecution. But I've overcome the world. Judah said, I want no part of that. As the heat was turned up and the moisture was dried from him, he withered and had no fruit. So there may be somebody like that here today. Uh, the gospel sounds good. Forgiveness of sins, eternal life. And as long as everything's going great, yeah, I'll hang in there. I like the fellowship. Uh, I like the singing. Uh, I, I like being part of what's good. And, and I even learned to, to walk the way they walk, talk the way they talk. Uh, I'll be one of them. And I heard in a trial some years ago where the prosecutor said if he uh, looks like a duck and walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, then it's got to be a duck. Not necessarily. I went to high school with a guy that waddled just exactly like a duck. He, when he talked, he even sounded a little like a duck. Um, but he wasn't at all. He was more of a turkey, as I think about it. Um, <laughs> Judas looked like he was the real thing, but he was not. And when the heat turned up, he bailed. And Jesus was very clear about that. Then we see seeds sown in the weedy soil. That's in verse 22. Now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. Uh, this is another one who, who springs up quickly and he's looking for good things. But his heart hasn't been changed. He still has that uh, fallen nature. And uh, he's concerned about everything going on around him in the world. How he can promote himself. How he can be, get more wealth. How he can have more fun. And the deceitfulness of riches. That would deceive so many. And when that happens, it just chokes out the word. And he becomes totally unfruitful. In Luke chapter 18, we read about the rich young ruler, verses 18 through 23. He came to Jesus, and he was impressed with Jesus, and he was a good man. In fact, he said, what, what must I do to know for sure that I'm saved, that I'm going to the kingdom of heaven? And he begins to list the commandments. And he said, oh, I've done all of those from my youth. I'm, I'm good there. But Jesus knew his heart, and he was very rich. He said, he didn't say this to everybody, but he said to him, if you really want to have eternal life, if you really want to follow me, take all that you have, sell it, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And that young man went away very sorrowful because his riches were his God ultimately. That's a good point. Who is your God? It is the one to whom you are ultimately loyal. When the chips are down, where do you turn? What do you preserve? And to him it was his wealth. And Christ said, 
it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved. Not impossible. Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus were both wealthy men. God revealed himself to them and they responded and they were saved. But it's difficult. It doesn't happen much because the world has such a tremendous attraction. The fun I can have. Even, you know, the sinful things seem to be the most enjoyable. The forbidden fruit seems to be the sweetest. And so we're drawn away. And even those that were close to Paul, you read through, you might look it up in your concordance. Look up the word Demas. Demas was one of the followers of, with Paul, followed the Lord. He's mentioned in Colossians and other passages in a good sense. But the last book that Paul wrote was 2 Timothy. And in the fourth chapter, he's writing to Timothy. He's in prison now. I mean big-time prison, not where he was under house arrest and had certain freedoms. He was in the dungeon, chained up and sentenced to die. He said, if you can come, come. Bring a coat because it's cold here. Bring some parchment so it's something to read and to write on. And if possible, uh, bring Mark because he's profitable to me. But he said, there's a lot of folks that were here. Some I sent out to minister. Uh, Trophimus was sick and had to stay in Miletus. Only Luke is with me. And something he says very sad about Demas. Demas hath forsaken us, having loved this present world. That's in the fourth chapter, verse 10. We don't know what got into Demas. We don't know where he went. We don't know what seduced him. But he was there for a while, but he didn't continue. The thing that we want to look at is the good seed. But lest you be deceived, you cannot lose your salvation. If Christ has saved you, he will keep you. And I would maintain that neither the stony soil or the weedy soil talk of those who were saved and lost their salvation. Because who is responsible for our salvation? You? Me? If that were so, we'd absolutely lose it. If you could lose it, you would lose it. Because we've got a wayward heart. <laughs> it's like that song says, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And he says, take my heart and seal it. You've got to keep me because if I could lose it, I, I would. To what does Christ compare us as Christ followers? Does he compare us to lions, to eagles, to the stallion, the strong, the fast, the endurance? No. He compares us to sheep. <laughs> There's not an animal dumber and more vulnerable than sheep. They wander off and get lost. They fall in a ditch, can't get out. The, the predators kill them and eat them and the Thieves, rustlers, take them away. Sheep have got to have a shepherd. Sheep cannot keep themselves. <laughs> That's why Christ in John 10 says, I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. And they hear my voice, and they follow me, and I know them. And I give to them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Amen. That's where, if you're a Christ follower, and you're serious about it, not just superficial, not just from your emotions, not just from your intellect, from the depths of your heart, 
if you have said, which is required, I am a lost, carnal sinner. I cannot save myself. I can't contribute to my salvation. I'm totally dependent upon the grace and mercy of God. I cast myself before the throne of God and ask you in your mercy and grace to forgive my sins, to apply to me the blood of Christ to wash my sin away, to apply to me his life and resurrection that I might have that confidence of life and, and of joy and acceptance. That's what it means to be truly saved, a child of God. And that's what this good soil is all about. We want to look at that in verse 23. But he who receives seed of the good ground, he is one uh, who hears the word of God and understands it, uh, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. The proof of the pudding, in this case, is the fruit thereof. Mark did a great job this last week talking about that, that a good tree has to produce good fruit. A bad tree can only produce bad fruit. A bad tree cannot say, I'm going to be better. I'm going to be more obedient. I'm going to be religious. I'm going to be more righteous. That's what the Pharisees did, but they still had a bad heart. It was only those that, that said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that's the one that Christ can receive and indwell and change that life, that the seed does sprout and it does grow. And the the rocks don't choke it out, and the weeds don't destroy it, and it produces fruit. Fruit is the proof of life. By their fruits, you shall know them. And <clears throat> it is important that that fruit be real and that fruit remain. In John 15, I think it's 5 and 6, where Christ said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He that abides in me and I in him it's going to bear much fruit. But he also says that that branch that doesn't abide, it may be physically attached, attending the church and so on, but there's no vitality. He's not abiding. The life of the vine is not flowing through that branch. He's broken off, gathered together, cast into the fire, and burned. And again, he's talking about the the Pharisees and those who are of similar mind. And in verse 16, he tells his disciples, you have not chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you that you should bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. And that's what God's looking for. You say, well, what is that fruit? How can we recognize it? Well, there's at least four ways. Number one is the fruit of the Spirit. Randall talked about that during Sunday school. Galatians chapter 5, verse 21, and it says, the fruit of the Spirit. That's talking about that which flows from the heart, that changes one's nature, and it changes his behavior. Uh, it produces love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, those are the things that you and I cannot produce in ourselves. We can't take a class in school. We can't get in a training program. That's what the Holy Spirit 
does through us. That's the fruit of the Spirit. There's also the fruit of the lips. And that's in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. And said, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks unto his name. You ever thought about that? The things that you say, the praise unto the Lord. The, I can't sing a lick, and just ask my wife about that. But yesterday, as I was walking through this desolate area, tried to do that several times a week, and it came into my mind that wonderful chorus, I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you. Oh, my soul, rejoice. Take joy, my king, in what you hear. May it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. And I was trying to sing that. Thankfully, I was a long way from civilization. Uh, and I think God can receive that and understand that. The fruit of your lips. Do you encourage? Uh, do you comfort? Uh, are your words... Uh, an admonition and a blessing to others. That's the fruit of the lips. Then there's the fruit, I would say, of the hands. That which we do, that which we give as we open our hand toward others. In Philippians chapter 4, uh, Paul's writing to the Philippian saints and he says, he's down in Corinth in southern Greece and Philippi's up in Macedonia, north of there. And he had been there and established churches, and he had pastored there for a while. He said, now that I'm down here, no other church up there has responded to my needs, but you have. Time and again, you've, you've given to my necessities. Then what does he say? Not that I desire the gift, but I desire fruit that would abound to your account. And he says, I've received from Epaphroditus that pleasant, sweet-smelling aroma, that sacrifice well-pleasing unto God. As you minister, as you help, as you give, as you care, as you share, that's fruit. And that comes from the Lord abiding in him. And then lastly, uh, the fruit of souls. Animals are made to reproduce. Dogs have puppies and cats have kittens. Sheep have lambs. What are we supposed to have? Well, we get married, we have children, but in a spiritual sense, we as Christians are helped produce other Christians. We can't make them that way, but through our words, through our testimony, through our witness, we can have an impact in folks getting saved. In John chapter 4, where Christ worked with a woman at the well and brought her to a saving faith, and then as she goes and runs back to the city, his disciples come, and Jesus says to them, about 34 and 35, I think it is. He says, don't say that four more months and then is the harvest. Lift up your eyes into the fields, for they're white already unto harvest. What does that mean? Any of you wheat farmers know exactly what that means. As wheat grows and matures, it turns golden. And that's what you want to see. That's when it's time to harvest it. But if it starts to have a white cast across it, you're in trouble. Because that that wheat kernel is encased inside the husk, the chaff. And it's all golden on the outside, but when it opens up and the kernel of wheat falls to the ground and perishes, what's on the inside? It's as white as it can be. And when you look out and your field's kind of got a white cast on it, you're losing your harvest. You better get in that combine and get out there because it's urgent. And that's what Christ is telling them. 
And in the next verse, he says, he that reaps has his reward, gathering fruit unto eternal life, so that he that sows and he that reaps may rejoice together. <laughs> oh, that wonderful aspect of evangelism, of being a positive uh, participant in the seed going out, the word going out, and then being a part of sitting down with someone and, and as they pray to receive Christ, you're helping reap that harvest. What a blessing. Unfortunately, not many Christians ever get involved in that. They come to church, they hear the word, they sing, they pray, they fellowship, and they give their money and do a lot of really good things, teach and usher and what have you. But this idea of actually getting out in evangelism, being a part of that, is foreign to most believers and how tragic that is. What a blessing, though. In Proverbs chapter 11, verse 30, it says, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he that wins souls is wise. That's the kind of fruit we're talking about, and that fruit needs to remain. So I have three questions to ask yourself. It's in the bulletin, and I hope you'll take note of that and take it home with you. What type of fruit or what type of soil do you consider yourself? Well, we want to say, well, I'm the good soil. Yes, sir, I'm abiding, I'm bearing fruit. Um, are you? Or maybe you're kind of a stony person, and your Christianity is pretty shallow. And uh, when the heat, and, you know, you get criticized, or you get ostracized from a certain group, you don't, you're passed over for a promotion, you may lose your job. There, there are Christians, like Randall, Randall mentioned, all over the world, that really suffer. They get arrested. They have their properties confiscated. They get put in prison. Some of them are tortured. Many of them die. We don't suffer that kind of persecution, but there is a price of discipleship. And when we find out, hey, I'm not just a spoiled kid, can do what I want. God wants me to accept him not only as my Savior, but as my Lord. And have I done that? It's a good question. How faithful, how committed are we? Which type of soil are you? The second question is, what evidence is there to support your claim? Do you have the fruit of the Spirit manifested in your life? Do you have the fruit of the lips that comes forth as you express yourself to others? Do you have the fruit of your hands as you give, you care, you share, you minister? And is there the fruit of souls? Either sowing or reaping. Is it there? Is there sufficient evidence to back up your claim? Has Christ really done a life-transforming work in your heart? It is don't come and associate and participate. Uh, it's a part of total regeneration. And added to that, is there some action that you need to take? Um, you're probably not here if you're the wayside, the hard-packed soil. But if you are, you wandered in here by mistake, <laughs> uh, there's hope for you. The Apostle Paul was absolutely opposed to Christian things, but God worked his heart. He broke up that soil. He got rid of those weeds. He took out those rocks, and he, and he brought great fruit from him. So uh, as long as there's life, there's hope. And don't give up on anyone that you think might not ever get saved because God's in the business of transforming people. But could you be 
the thin soil on top of the rocks. And you don't want to pay any kind of price. You just want the good things. Well, that's not going to happen. You're going to get discouraged. You're going to bail if that's your, if that's your attitude. And maybe you're very worldly. You like the fun, the games, uh, the chance of riches and possessions and being popular and having influence and power. Listen, those weeds will choke you out. Maybe there's something you need to do about that. But <clears throat> there's that that's good soil that's tilled and fresh and rich and deep and clean that will bring forth that fruit. This is the type of question you need to answer. And <clears throat> we're not going to have an invitation as such to ask you to come forward and bow in front of this pew in the front and so on. But we will be singing a song, and then there will be having baptism later. Um, after that song, I'm not going to go in the back and have you come by and congratulate me and tell me how much you enjoyed the message, whether you did or not. That's kind of what you do. Uh, I'm going to stay up here in the front. And uh, during that transition time, if you've got a question, if you'd like some answers, if you'd like to pray with me, or one of our elders, they're all around here. We'd like to do that. We don't want you to just hear the word and then leave. We want it to take root. We want to see some fruit, and we want to help you to grow. And that's why we're here. So I'm going to pray, and then Paige, you're going to come and lead us in a song. And, and I would encourage you not just to walk away. And if you have to leave, write us a little note. There's pieces of paper there. Uh, and, and leave it with one of our guys or on the, the counter out there. Give us a phone number or, or an email address because we want to be there for you.